This last week I received an email from a student somewhere who had been listening last weekend on the radio as we began this series. I want to read to you a portion of that email. Dr. Nelson, I listened to your presentation on the refreshing delusion today via radio. I'm coming to consider myself a closet atheist, which makes your confrontation of Dawkins, that would be Richard Dawkins, we looked at his book, The God Delusion, last week, which makes your confrontation of Dawkins of particular significance at this point in my search. And then... He describes the family he grew up in, a very Christian family, obviously. And as a result, my bookshelf is lined with titles by Josh McDowell, Michael Behe, and Alistair McGrath. Those are all Christian writers, scientists and theologians. But those books, they've been steadily losing ground as the scales tip in favor of Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Michael Shermer, all atheist authors, and the deafening voice of the academic community at large. All right. I have to admit that despite my attempts to be an objective learner, my worldview is essentially a leaf swaying in the winds of cognitive dissonance and peer pressure. I gather from the website that there will be a second part to the refreshing delusion next week. Question mark. Actually, there are six parts. We are now in, in part two. I look forward to it. My challenge to you would be this. <clears throat> Whoa. Impress me. <laughs> I want to tell you, I have such a hard time impressing my wife. How could I possibly impress you? At this rate, it probably won't be long before I begin losing ties with the church. And the outside voices will be all I can hear. Your voice is one of the voices that has a chance to make a cogent impact on the paradigm that I and others like me share before we get sucked into the skeptic machine. Thank you again for your openness in the pulpit. And he signs his name. I'm going to respond to my young friend. I don't know if he's here. I don't know if he's listening on the radio. I don't know if he is watching on television right now. I got your word. It's a bit intimidating, this bit about impress me. But I want to respond to you and I want to respond to your friends. As we noted last time, there are only two worldviews. Regarding human origins, only two worldviews. One is called naturalism, where nature reigns supreme. And, my, and, and the young writer is absolutely right. This worldview is the deafening voice of the academic community at large. No question. The other worldview, it's the older worldview. Supernaturalism. Above and beyond nature, there is a divine creator. There is no third option. There is no, there's no middle ground when it comes to human origins. Only those two worldviews. Which is why I take very seriously the challenge of this young writer, impress me. And while there's no way I can impress you, no way. Nevertheless, I want to invite you to join me, all of us join together and ponder a bit longer the last day of creation in the biblical account recorded here in Holy Scripture. Open your Bible with me, please, to the Bible's first book, Bereshith, 
First word in Hebrew is the title in Hebrew of the book in the beginning. Genesis 1 was where we were last week. We moved into Genesis 2. I want to return to Genesis 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, please grab the Pew Bible right in front of you. You need to track this today, especially today. It'll be page 2 in your Pew Bible, Genesis 2. New King James Version. There in the Pew. Genesis 2. That's what I have right here. Genesis 2, verse 1. Here we go. Thus, the six days are described there in Genesis 1. Six days of creation. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Now verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. I've got to ask you something. Have you ever wondered why there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance in what we've just read? I mean, it says... How is this possible? It says that God ended His work on the seventh day. He did two things. He ended His work and He also rested. That doesn't seem logical at all to me. It ought to read, and on the sixth day He ended His work, and on the seventh day He rested. But ladies and gentlemen, that is not what we just read. I came across the work of a Danish writer. I've been impressed with this careful, logical, philosophical thinking. And his writing, his bit of reasoning has helped clear up any confusion. And so I want to share, top of your study guide, <clears throat> top of your study guide, I want to share that quotation. Take your study guide out, please. It should be right there in your worship bulletin. Pull your study guide out. Thank you, ushers, for making sure that everybody here, all the way to the back of the balcony. And by the way, that includes overflow in the youth chapel. Make sure that everybody gets a, um, a study guide today. And while they're doing that, I want to thank you who are watching us on television right now. I'm delighted that you're here. Get the same study guide. You can do it. Go to our website. There it is on the screen, www.pmchurch.tv. And you're looking for a series called The Sabbath. Two-word series, The Sabbath. Today's teaching, The Three-Act Play. The Three-Act Play. You look for that one. It's part two in the series. It'll say study guide there. You click and you'll have the same study guide we have. Let's begin with the words of this Danish writer. His name, M.L. Andreasen. All right? First quotation at the top of your study guide. The heavens and the earth were indeed finished. We just read that, Genesis 2.1. But God's work was not ended. He had yet to make the Sabbath, and this he could do only on the Sabbath. And so God made the Sabbath on the Sabbath, and he made it by resting. Write that in. He made it by resting. That resting ended his work. The Sabbath was the finishing touch. Only when God had made the Sabbath was His work done. Whoever believes in a finished creation must of necessity believe in the Sabbath. End quote. What's, what, what's his point? It's the point that Genesis 2, what Moses is making. Look, God's work was not ended on the sixth day. There was more work to be done, and so God gave the finishing touch to His work by resting on the seventh day. If God had ended His work on the sixth day, some would conclude, you know, the Sabbath really is not that essential to God's original design. You don't, you don't have to have it. No way, Genesis 2 cries out. No, 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 no. He was not finished on the sixth day. In fact, jot this down. God ended His work on the seventh day, which means that in some significant way, the seventh day is utterly essential 
to both the divine creator and the human race. To reinforce the high premium that the divine creator places on the seventh day, Genesis 2 describes three divine acts. Three acts. A three-act play. Here it goes. Three acts. Let's let's read it again. This would be verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. What are those three divine acts? Jot them down. Let's go. Number one. Divine act number one in this three-act play. God blessed the seventh day. Do you know that when God blesses, and the Hebrew word here is barak, when God blesses something or someone, his posture assumes a very intentional stance. Watch this. This is fascinating. Let's go to, uh, you remember Moses and uh, Aaron, they were brothers. Aaron was a leader of the worship community, and Moses instructed Aaron. He said, hey, listen, when, when we're done worship, I want you to come out every time and raise your hands and give what we now call the Aaronic Blessing. It's in number six. Notice what happens in number six. Let's put it on the screen. Number six, verses 24 and 25. The Lord bless you. Okay, so that's what's going to happen now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord, here comes the face again. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the ironic blessing. Is that isolated in that blessing? No, it is not. Take a look at this. Psalm 67, verse 1. It's a prayer to God. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face. When you bless us, here's what's going to happen. You're going to cause your face to shine upon us. Write it down, please. When God blesses something or someone, He turns His face toward it to give it His full attention. Hey, come on, guys. You and I are the same way, aren't we? We are the same way. I remember the very first car I ever bought. It was in college. It was a brand new 11-year-old Volkswagen Bug. Oh, I love that car. Look, a flaky green paint job, oversized rear tires, a rusted and holy muffler. But I could not take my eyes off of that car. Every time I came out of the dorm, Talish Hall, I look over in the parking lot. Is it still there? Oh, yes. Lovely. Lovely. Why? Because when something is of great value to you, you put your face... Full face. And you hold your eyes. You lock on. The Scriptures say that when God blesses us, He turns His smiling and beaming face full on, straight into our face. That's what it means to get a blessing from God. Karen and I were at some holiday gathering the other evening and I gazed across the room and it was one of those moments that husbands and wives know about. Even if you've been married for nearly 34 years, she turned, and it was an epiphany of beauty. I could not get my eyes off of that girl. Huh? Why? Because when something is of great value to you, you lock your eyes on it. When God blesses... How does that line go? And God blessed the seventh day. God does something to the seventh day. He does not do to the first day or the second day or the third day or fourth, fifth, and sixth. Only to the seventh does God turn His face. And with that beaming smile, He locks His eyes on that seventh day. Because when something is of great value to you, you keep turning your face toward it. And the seventh day is the only day that God has blessed. Which is why, by the way, for the life of me, I'm a little slow, but I cannot imagine... 
how anybody could come along and announce that the blessing of God has been removed from the seventh day and transferred to another day, especially since there is not a solitary hint of such a removal and transfer in all of Holy Scripture. What's so big deal about the seventh day? We're finding out. Keep going. Let's read the verse 3 again. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work, which God had created and made. Okay, here comes act number two in the divine play. Act number two, jot it down. God sanctified the seventh day. Now, the Hebrew word for sanctified is kadash. It's a verb form of the word holy. So, essentially, what Genesis 2 is saying is God holyized. He holyized the seventh day. Eugene Peterson, in that marvelous paraphrase of his called The Message, nailed it. He nailed it. Jot this down. Here's how he translated it. Uh, This is Genesis 2, 3. The message reads, He, God, made it a holy, capital H. Make sure you get the capital. He made it a holy, capital D, day. And God made the seventh day a holy day. Hey, listen, do you know what makes something holy? What makes something holy? I remember that story, the old middle-aged shepherd tending his father-in-law's sheep out in the middle of nowhere, minding his own business, when one day he sees this towering sheet. Remember that? Towering sheet of orange flame. And inside that sheet is a green bush that is not being consumed and he's never seen anything like it in his whole life. And so Moses tells the sheep to stay right there. And Moses is walking up to the bush and he has his staff and he's going to poke into the flames when this voice comes booming out. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Question. What made that ground in that bush holy? Answer. The very presence and glory of God Almighty. Isn't that right? I mean, a few months later, Moses and the children of Israel... God has delivered them from Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. And they build this little, they build this little lean-to church made out of tapestried walls. They call it the sanctuary. And on the day that they opened it for the first time, you look at Exodus 40, right there at the end, there is this... You remember the pillar of cloud that led them every day where they went? You remember that? It just comes descending and turns into fire. There is so much glory in the place. Not one priest, not even Moses himself, would dare to enter. It's become Holy ground. Question. What turned that sanctuary into holy ground? Answer. The very presence and glory of God Almighty. So when the same Moses speaks of this same God, and he describes God turning a day, turning a day into holy, sanctifying a day. Question. What is it that makes the seventh day holy? Answer. The very presence and glory of Almighty God. Keep your pen moving. God is present in. Now, this, this, is, this is very important. The point is, God is present in, not on. That's not a, something we forgot in there. That's supposed to be there. God is present in, not on, the seventh day. The seventh-day Sabbath, which is why, keep your pen moving, Abraham Heschel, the great mystic and theologian, could write, The seventh day is like a palace in time with a kingdom for all. Look, God not only turns His face. Isn't this incredible? God not only turns His face toward the seventh day, He actually infuses it so that it becomes 
He becomes it. Which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is why, and this, this, this is critical, on the seventh day, I used to get this backwards, on the seventh day, God invites the human race to enter His day. We do not invite God to enter our space. I mean, we've tended to think, well, the Sabbath is when you say, God, come on in, come into our little house, come into my dormitory room, spend the day with me. God says, you got a time out. You just walked into my space. It's my palace in time. Welcome, child. Nice to have you here today. See, there's a difference. Jot it down, for it is God's very presence in the seventh day that makes it both holy and holy His. Make sure you spell the holies different. Two different holies. The seventh day makes it holy because God's presence is infused into the very seventh day. And by the way, it's not only that holy, it's the W-H-O-L-L-Y holy as well. This is exclusively, it is all mine. I used to think that, well, this day is mine now that you gave it to me. No, I didn't give it to you to possess. I gave it to you as a gift to spend with me. It's my day. Whoa. Which is why for the life of me, I, I cannot imagine how anybody could come along and announce that God's holy presence has somehow been removed from, the, from His palace in time. It's just been removed and transferred to some other day. Come on. Who in the world would have the authority to do that? Especially when there's not a solitary hint of such a removal and transfer in all the Holy Scripture. I'm telling you, as you, as you university students say, God is all over the seventh day. He's all over it. It's His day. It must, it must, be, a, it must be a huge day to God. How, why, why is it so special? That's what we're trying to find out. Let's read it again. Verse 3, Genesis 2, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and He sanctified it. Because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. A a three-act divine play. Here comes act number three. Jot it down. Act number one, God blessed the seventh day. Act number two, God sanctified the seventh day. And act number three, God rested on the seventh day. But I've got to ask you, come on, just in, in all candor. Why would a God, please, you tell me. Why would a God who is infinite, do you know what infinite means? It means I'm above all time. I'm not affected by time. Why would a God who is both infinite and omnipotent, do you know what it means to be omnipotent? It means you have all power. You can do anything. Just like you just move your little finger. Boom, it happens. How, how could a God like that need time for rest? You don't need to rest. In fact, look at this. This is amazing. This verse is in your Bible. This would be Isaiah chapter 40. Fill this in, please. The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator. Notice, intentionally, the wording there, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. The Bible makes sure that we know that whatever's happening on this seventh day with Almighty God has nothing to do with physical rest. He never gets weary. Why would I need to rest out of tiredness? No, can't be. Remember, the Hebrew word for rest is Shabbat. From whence comes our word Sabbath or Sabbath. Why would God need a Sabbath rest, huh? Clearly something more. Got to be more than physical rest. I mean, you think about it. To whom did God give the first seventh-day Sabbath? To whom did God give it? First two human beings, man and woman, of course, Adam and Eve. I want to ask you something. Are they worn out already? Are they tired? How could it be? They just got made yesterday. You can't get tired if you're made yesterday. Can you? Now, Sakai Kubo. In his book, God Meets Man, 
makes the obvious point that we so easily overlook. And I want you to have it there in your study guide. So there it is. Thus, I'm quoting Kubo now. Thus, fittingly, the Sabbath for Adam and Eve was the first full day after their creation. It was not because they had labored for a week and needed rest that God invited them to celebrate it. No, God met them on their first day. And I like this. Man's history with God thus begins on the Sabbath. Human history begins on the Sabbath. The seventh day of the creation week, not on the first day. End quote. Come on, guys. This is not rocket science. Our first day as a newly created race was God's seventh day. Thus, jot this down, will you, please? The Sabbath has ever been the first day of the rest of our lives. Little double entendre there. The first day of the rest of our lives. And what is it that brings rest to our lives? Ah, come on. What could rest us and refresh us more than a personal friendship with our Creator? I mean, what would be more resting, huh? Refreshing. John Kelman, he's a Scottish writer, mid-19th century, describes why God created the seventh day. I like this. I jot it down. Every time the Sabbath came round, while it would of necessity bring before the minds of humanity the glory of God's wisdom and power and goodness as manifested in His works of creation. But there's more, he's saying. There's more than just reminding us that God's a creator. It would bring still more prominently before our minds and present in special splendor, he's writing as an Englishman, and attractiveness, the crowning glory of His love. Manifested in His coming so very near to us in friendship, as man's glorious capital F friend, end quote. Oh, I like that. What Kelman is saying is, hey, hey, look, look, the Sabbath is not, is not just about reminding us that we have a creator and that there is a creation. I mean, that's, that's wonderful. But an even higher calling of the Sabbath is not just that God is our creator, he is also our companion. The God of the universe is your companion in the journey. The three-act divine play on the Sabbath makes it utterly clear the gift of the Sabbath is the friendship of God. Nathan Green, an internationally celebrated artist, lives just a few miles from us right now, painted that painting. And I love it. Isn't it great? I just love it. The gift of the Sabbath is the friendship of God. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, in the very middle of the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, were written by the Creator with His own finger into stone, in the very center of the Decalogue is inscribed the Fourth Commandment. The Fourth Commandment. I want to end with this. This will be our last text. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look this one up. 20. So you just go to the second book of the Bible. If you have a pew Bible, that would be page 52. Exodus chapter 20. We're We're only going to look. At the fourth commandment, that begins in verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. All right? Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Ten. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Why? Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Isn't that amazing? This is the only commandment that begins with the word remember. 
It's the only one of the ten that appeals, that appeals to human memory. Why? Jot it down. Because it is the one commandment the human race has known from the beginning of time. That's why. You've always known. Remember. Remember. From day seven of creation, the divine gift of the seventh day Sabbath has been in play in human history. Yeah, but come on, why remember the Sabbath to keep it holy? It states it. The finger of the Creator carved it. He says, this is why, look at verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Did you notice that? There we have it again. Three-act divine play. That's it. All three acts are there. God blessed the seventh day. In other words, on the Sabbath, God turns His face full Beaming smile straight into the children he is invited to join him on that day. God blessed the seventh day. God sanctified the seventh day. He infuses his time, his very self, into the time, those 24 hours. And third act, God rested on the seventh day. I.e., the seventh day is the gift day of his friendship for the rest of our lives. No wonder... He placed the fourth commandment in the center. And by the way, if you count the words of the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew and you start at the end and you start at the beginning, you'll come right to the middle word, fourth commandment, center. Let me quote that Danish writer again, who in this context makes a point I had never noted before. M.L. Andreasen. It's in your study guide. The Sabbath command is the only commandment in the observance of which God could join Man. You know, I never thought about that, but it's got to be true. I mean, how is, how is God going to join us in, you shall have no other gods before me? That doesn't even make sense. How is He going to join us in, keep, you, should, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain? Please. He can't join us in honor your father and your mother. He doesn't have any parents. He's the one that made parents. How does He join us in, don't steal, don't commit adultery? He cannot join us. It's the one commandment of all ten. It's the one Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Where this great friendship day, he comes down and we join together in that one commandment. Uh, Andreasen goes on here. There is one commandment in the observance of which God could join man. The Sabbath commandment. Man can keep it. God can keep it. Thus, the Sabbath is the meeting place. I like that. It's the only one. Only one in the ten. The Sabbath is the meeting place. Of God and man. End quote. Which is why I repeat this. For the life of me. I cannot imagine how anyone, not even any church, could come along and announce that God's fourth commandment has been chiseled out of the Decalogue. And another day now has been substituted. It just, it just, especially since there's not a solitary hint of such a removal and transfer in all of Holy Scripture. I mean, here's the, here's the question. Why would anybody ever want to get rid of the Seventh-day Sabbath? Now, I know there are those who say, hey, listen, do I come on time out, time out? Don't you know, boy, that the Sabbath was made for the Jews? And then they make, a, they make a correct observation. 
They say, after all, there is no biblical record of Sabbath keeping or explicit divine command for Sabbath keeping until Mount Sinai and the children of Israel. So it's for Israel. It's not for the rest of us. I want to respond to that. I want to give you six challenges to that kind of thinking. Let me run them by you. You jot them down. All right. Challenge number one. This is this is kind of the the obvious. No rocket science here. Number one. When God gave the Sabbath to humanity, Jews were not even in existence, just the human race. So that ought to pretty much end it right there. But I want to give you five more. Five more. Number two. In a perfect world, wouldn't the example of the Creator be command enough? His very example. Sammy Sammy Bakayoki asked... Just five questions. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to quote these five questions. You have them in your study guide. This is from his book, Divine Rest for Human Restlessness. Five rhetorical questions. You think of the answers. Question number one. What is it that makes any divine precept moral and universal in the first place? Would have to be the example of God. Number two. Do we not regard a law moral when it reflects God's nature? Number three. Could God have given a stronger revelation of the moral nature of the Sabbath than by making it a rule of His divine conduct? Number four, is a principle established by divine example less binding than one enunciated by divine command? And finally, number five, do not actions speak louder than words? If you've ever been a parent or if you're ever going to become a parent, you're going to find out just like that, that you sometimes never have to say a word to your kids. You just go through the motions and they will be right behind you doing the very same thing. That's just the way it is when you're a parent. Children love to follow the model of a father or a mother. You don't have to make a command. Just follow me. Okay, that's number two. Here's number three. This is interesting. Seven times. Jot this down, please. Seven times in the book of Genesis, it refers to the seven-day week. And there, the references are all there. Now, guys, let's just do a little bit of uh, thinking here. If a week is seven days long, wouldn't you pretty much have the seventh day? Huh? Seven times in the book of Genesis. The week is referred to. If you've got a week, you're going you're to have to have the seventh day. Number four. Oh, this is, this is an interesting one. The divine provision of the manna. Write it in. Manna. Remember that little white frosty substance on the ground that the people ate for 40 years? The divine provision of the manna clearly presupposes the people's knowledge of the sanctity of the seventh day. Read Exodus 16. It's all there. And by the way, this is before Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments aren't given until Exodus 20. So before there ever were the Ten, there's this story. You remember, on Sunday, Monday... on. on Every day of the week, there was this white stuff on the ground. And by the way, the word went out from God. Don't you, you think you're going to sleep in on Tuesday so you get a double portion on Monday so you can sleep in on Tuesday? Forget it. It will turn rotten overnight. Some people didn't believe it. They took a little extra so they could sleep in. It was rotten the next morning. Divine miracle. No, you're not going to. You just get enough for today. But when you come to the sixth day, listen to me carefully, God says, on this day, you go ahead and take a double portion. Because you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and there will not be a blade of grass with anything white on it. Because that's my Sabbath. By divine miracle, every seventh day. Before Mount Sinai. Before Mount Sinai. And then you look at Exodus 16. God says, listen. Because some people went out on the Sabbath and said, I'm hungry. I forgot to get extra yesterday. 
Too late. Nothing there. God says, how long, how long are you going to forget my command? This commandment has been around from the very beginning. All right, we've got to go. Number five, the very language of the fourth commandment presupposes a knowledge of the Sabbath. It says, remember. If they hadn't known it, God should have said, thou shalt keep the seventh day holy. I've got something new I'm going to tell you today. Keep the seventh day holy. Just No, just remember. You've been with this. You've been following Father for all these centuries. And then finally, to me, this is the clincher, number six. None, write it in, none of the other Ten Commandments is commanded in Genesis either. Does that mean they were not applicable to humanity and unknown until Sinai? Because that's the big point. Nobody knew about the Sabbath until Sinai. Well, what about the other nine? Look at did Cain, when Cain killed his brother, did he feel bad? He felt awful. Didn't he know you're not supposed to kill? Or why didn't he say to God, I never knew you can't kill people. I thought you could do this. No, he knew. When Abraham is lying about his wife being his sister, don't you think he, he knows he's breaking the don't bear false witness command? Of course he knows. He's feeling guilty of sin. And when Joseph comes to Mrs. Potiphar, oh, let's reverse the story. When Mrs. Potiphar comes to Joseph, why didn't Joseph just say, hey, listen, you want to sleep with me? Let's go to bed. There's no commandment yet. We're this side of Mount Sinai. Hallelujah. No, there's none of that, ladies and gentlemen. Joseph knew the command, you shall not commit adultery. And he said, woman, I can't sin against God and do this. Where do these boys and girls get all this? They got it from a father who has been telling them from the very beginning. You don't have to write it when you're a parent. You just model it. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, six proofs that the Sabbath has been God's gift to the human race from the very beginning of time. Why? For the gift of the Sabbath is the friendship of God. That's why. That's why. And why would anybody, why would anybody want to get rid of the Seventh-day Sabbath? I'm going to tell you. Our next teaching, don't miss it. It's entitled, Legacy of the Bastard Science. That's not strong language, by the way. That's technical dictionary language, and I'm quoting somebody else. And it's descriptive. Got your attention. That's the point. The legacy of the illegitimate science. Next time. Think of the heartache. Come on, guys. Think of the heartache that could have been spared the human race had we always remembered God is our creator and our capital F friend. The only way I can figure it out, I'm not real smart, but the only way I can figure it out is there must be somebody who does not want the human race to remember. There must be somebody who's working awfully hard. And so let me end with a word to my young friend who wrote the email challenge to me, impress me. My friend, you know... By now that I have taken your email seriously, it's clear to me you are serious about the possibility of adopting atheism as your worldview. Now I need you to take me seriously. I've taken you seriously. You take me seriously now. Listen, if you are intellectually honest and everything you write indicates that you are, if you are, then you need, you need to experiment for a bit longer. You need to experience this gift of the seventh day. 
I know what you're thinking. You say, hey, come on, come on, I don't have time for this. Hey, you have time. It's taken you months to come to your convictions now. You need, you intellectually honest, you need to give yourself this time. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Can't require it of you. Can't check up with you. I'm asking you. You owe it to yourself in honesty. Here's what I'm asking you to do over the next few Sabbaths. Say, how many? More than just two or three. Over the next few Sabbaths, here's the prayer that I'd like to ask you to pray. You don't have to write it down. I have a feeling it'll stick in your mind. I put it on the screen, though, in case you're watching. Here's the prayer. Okay, God. If there really is you, and you really are my creator, and the seventh day really is your day with me, then I'm asking you, okay, this is the deal. I'm bright. You're bright, God. Let's do this. Then I'm asking you to please reveal yourself to me. Impress me. Because if you do exist, and you are a friend, then I'd be a fool to walk away from you. Amen. You remember the prayer. I know you will. I want you to pray it over the next few seventh days. Do it on the day where God has infused Himself into time. You pray the prayer. Because on the authority of this word right here, it's clear to me that the gift of the Sabbath is the friendship of God. And if that's true, then you open your mind to Him on this day and I promise you that in His own way, He will speak to you. He wants your friendship that much. And I'll be praying for you. Let's stand as we pray together. And so here we are, Holy Father. We are on this vast and wide spectrum of life. On the one hand, an email wrestling with a worldview far down the spectrum. An aged senior citizen who has found you faithful every day of her life and who worships you with all her heart. In between these two, we're all spread out. Oh God, please. We pray the same prayer. Impress us. With all the sincerity we can muster, we ask that in your graciousness you might reveal yourself to us on the seventh day as both our Creator and our friend. Because if it's true that you are both, why would we ever walk away? In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.